you would please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. As we turn to God's Word, let's not fail to turn to Him once again in prayer and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed, as we have just sung, Your Scripture is words of power that can never fail. And Father, we pray that their truth, even this hour, this day, for our entire lives, would prevail over unbelief. Father, we echo the prayer that we read in your word, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we believe, would you help our unbelief today? For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why Acts? Well, we've taken a five-week break. We were in John chapter 1 for five weeks, all the weeks of December. Uh, We're picking back up where we left off at the end of November. Well, Acts, of course, is about the ongoing expansion and growth of the church. And we here in 2020 are part of the ongoing expansion and growth of the church. Acts reminds us that Christianity is grounded in the acts, the actions of God in history. At its heart, Christianity is not what you and I do. It's not what you and I assent to. It is is what God has done and still does for us. In Acts, we look back to see what God has done in Jesus Christ. We look forward to what God will do now by His Holy Spirit. You see, Acts provides both an anchor and an engine for us as it orients us to the work of God then in the past and now in the present and indeed in the future as we rest and rely on Him and His promises. Acts is not only a record of the expansion of the church, but it's also the the record of the work of the gospel in exposing hearts. And we've seen that thus far in Acts. Back on November 24th at our, interestingly, uh, the 24th message, we looked at Acts chapter 9, the second half of verse 19 through 31. It was called Preaching, Persecution, and Peace. Remember earlier in chapter 9, we saw that God converts and God calls. But from 19 through 31, we saw that God keeps. God keeps those whom he converts, those whom he calls. We saw in that section that Paul spoke out. Saul, the converted Pharisee, Paul the apostle, speaks out boldly declaring the good news about Jesus And Barnabas, Barnabas spoke up in Paul's defense. He built him up, he promoted him, he championed him. And from that, from Paul and and Barnabas, we see that one definition of a Christian is someone who's called to speak up and to speak out. And someone whom God promises to preserve. Look with me at verse 31 of chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit 
it multiplied. It's, it's, a, it's a great summary statement. Every now and then Luke, the author of Acts, just provides a helpful summary to get your bearing that God preserves the church. The church has peace. The church is growing. But now we come to these last 12 verses at the end of chapter 9. Why? Why are they included? Well, on the one hand, or on one level, you see them as a transition between the conversion of Saul and the future conversion of Cornelius. You see a a strategic placement of Peter near Caesarea in view of what we will see take place beginning in chapter 10. I think in many ways its, its purpose is just to cause us to stop and to consider what on earth is going on. You see, these are two miracles. And, and if you look at all of the scripture, miracles are pretty rare. As I mentioned earlier, there are three predominant uh, times. The time of the Exodus, the time of the ministries of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, the earthly ministry of Jesus, and here um, in these early chapters of Acts. Biblical miracles are strange, but true. They're strange. They're out of the ordinary. They're extraordinary, but true. They're hard to believe, but true. If you were with us on the first Sunday of December and the last Sunday of December, you may remember reading an excerpt from J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And it was all about the incarnation, that the big... um, Difficulty. The supreme mystery is, is, is not uh, this miracle or that miracle. It's the incarnation itself. He said it's you know, two for the price of one. The uh, one God and three persons and then uh, the dual nature of Christ. And if you get the incarnation, if you get the miracle of the incarnation, then everything else, the, the atonement, the other miracles in Scripture all fall into place. The Christmas message of the incarnation. Well, speaking of Christmas, um, I did not get any books for Christmas this year, but I did order a few uh, at the end of the year from Westminster Bookstore, one of my favorite bookstores, but it it doesn't have this book that I've recently run across, and and I was fascinated by the title, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to get this book. It's entitled this, Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. Do you hear the title of that book? Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. Well, I discovered after being captured by the title, I I discovered that this book is written by uh, William McRaven, a retired Navy admiral. And back in May of 2014, he was speaking at the University of Texas in Austin's commencement. And toward the beginning of his commencement speech, he said this. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride. And it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. 
And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made, and a, and a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. That sounds great, doesn't it? Super motivating. But here's a question. What if you can't make your bed? What if you cannot make your bed? It's not that you don't want to make your bed. You cannot make your bed. Well, in our text... We will hear of the making of a bed being commanded and accomplished. Join with me as I read verses 32 through 43 of Acts 9. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they, had, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now the two miracles here, the healing of the paralyzed man and the raising of the dead woman, are neither random acts of weirdness or random acts of kindness, nor are they some sort of arbitrary narrative that Luke has included in his account to somehow fill up space. Rather, the miracles themselves are intentional actions taken through the Apostle Peter, as well as being something that Luke has deliberately chosen to preserve through his writing. Why? Why are these miracles here? What are they doing here? What, what do they have to do with our life today? Well, they're here to serve as both signs that point to the truth, as well as pictures that illustrate the truth. And truth 
is what we all need to hear and believe and live according to. And what do we see when we see, what do we do actually when we see a sign or a picture? I think we stop. We stop and think before we move on. And that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. We're going to stop and think. Let's stop and think first about how miracles are signs that point us to the truth. Children, what's a sign? Right? Sign, it points to something. It announces something. It, we read in Acts 2.43, Now, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In chapter 5, we read, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And you see, as a sign, it's a visual act that is on the surface, but it points to a deeper reality below the surface. And in particular, these signs, these miracles as signs, point to the authority as Peter, as an apostle. Remember, it authenticated the ministry of Elijah. We saw that in 1 Kings 17. We see it in the ministry of Elisha in 2 Kings 4. Um, back then, there's witnesses around, and, and they, they, they show that God was with Elijah. He was a man of God. They show that Peter is a man of God, that they were true apostles because the many signs and wonders accompanied the work of the apostles. And now, what we have is we don't have Peter with us, we don't have Paul with us, we don't have the other apostles with us, but we don't have Elijah and Elisha, but what we have with us is the Word, the Word of God, the writings of the prophets and the apostles, the foundational writings of the prophets and the apostles. As a sign, it not only points to the authority of someone like Peter, it points to the authority and identity of Jesus as the Son of God. Notice in Peter's actions, they point away from himself and they point to Jesus. Look up in verse uh, 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Well, wait a minute. Isn't Peter doing the healing? Isn't Peter there? No. He recognizes that it's, it's the Lord who's doing the healing. Look at, look at in the second section where he put them all outside in verse 40 and he knelt down and prayed. He's like Elijah praying, asking God to do the work. Remember that cumbersome yet... I think good title of Acts, the Acts of the Exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church, founded by Him through the apostles. You see, here is demonstrated that Jesus is still healing people through Peter. Peter's doing just what Jesus did. He's relying on the pattern and power of Jesus Remember the healing of the, the paralytic in Capernaum. We see it in Mark 2 and Matthew 9. We see the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5. We saw in Luke the raising of the widow's son. Peter is following his master. He's following his Lord. Here we are called to witness 
as Stan prayed, to, to be a witness to the saving power of God, to be a witness that we don't save ourselves, but are saved by another. You see, we point away from ourselves. We, we point to Jesus who alone saves. I, I think most of you all are understandably frightened by the word evangelism, scared I'm not an evangelist. I, I can't, you know, share my faith. Well, if you think about it, it's, it's pointing not to yourself, but it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to another. I used to hate the expression, so-and-so led somebody to Christ. I thought, what an arrogant statement. No, I was actually the one that was arrogant. I learned what that really means. You're, you're leading someone to the only person who can save Jesus saves, we don't. And so we see in these two miracles, Peter's authority as an apostle is, is acknowledged and confirmed, and he is relying on the power of Jesus, and he's looking to Jesus, even though he himself is speaking, he himself is acting. This is also pointing to the reality that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has come. Remember how Jesus introduces his ministry in Mark 1? The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here is the word ministry and the deed ministry working together. One New Testament professor, I believe it was uh, William Larkin down at Columbia International University, said this once. We should recognize its legitimate role, meaning the word and deed, in giving credence to the preached word. In the end, saving faith must rest not on the impression that the miracle was made, but on the truth of the message to which it points. And that's where we're going to go. See, not only are these two miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead signs that point us to the truth, they're also pictures that illustrate the truth. In other words, they help us understand the truth. So what's a picture? It's, it's kind of like a sign. A, it's, a, it's a visible sign of an invisible reality. It's a physical sign of a spiritual reality. How many of us have not said words like this? Ah, I see now. I understand. We've all done that. I, I see. I now understand. So we've read these two miracles, about these two miracles, the healing of a paralyzed man and the raising to life of a dead woman. And I want to I, I ask, who are you in this picture? Who are you in this picture? It's, it's a good question to ask. I was really encouraged by eavesdropping on the women's Bible study about six months ago or so, not there at the study itself, but just listening, where um, the, the commentator says, you know what, it's really tempting for us to identify that we're like David as they study First and Second Samuel. But you know what? We're less like David, and we're a lot more like the, the, uh, the struggling, common, average Israelite who's struggling to believe. 
So who are you in this picture? Is, are, are you Peter? Are you the one that's, that's doing this? Or rather, are you Aeneas? Are you Tabitha? Because you see what we have here is a picture of salvation from sin and its effects. It's a picture of the condition of man. Paralyzed, not only paralyzed, but dead. It's a picture of the witness, the witness of a Christian. Peter, I love this, Peter went here and there among them all. It's really hard to witness if you're not here and there and among people. It's a picture of the condition of man. It's, the, it's a picture of the witness of a Christian. And by all means, it is a picture of the power of God. Notice the illustration is not just cripple, but dead. And not mostly dead, but dead, dead. And indeed, it will take a miracle. So who are you in this picture? Who are you? And where are you in this picture? Are you in the action before the miracle? Or after the miracle? Are you lame? Are you healed? Are you dead? Or are you alive? You know, the miracles and the miraculous, uh, they're not primarily for getting sick people well, or they would be everywhere, wouldn't they? So where do we see the miraculous today? If this is not one of those uh, periods of time where you see a high concentration of miracles, well, where do you see the miracle? Well, how about in the Scriptures One commentator says this, The prophets foreshadowed and the apostles echoed the life-giving power of the risen Lord who stands at the center of history. You see, at the center is the incarnation. At the center is the life and ministry of Jesus. At the center is His death and resurrection. His ascension and His promised return. And all the prophets look ahead And the apostles, as it were, look back and look ahead as well. So you see the miraculous in the scriptures. But where else do you see the miraculous? I I think if we were to stop and think, we see it in ourselves, in our lives. Um, I read a great article a few years ago called The Acid Test of Being a Christian. And it made an interesting comment. It said, if someone asks you, or if you ask a person, are you a Christian? And they said, oh, yes. And, they, and you say, well, why are you a Christian? And they say, well, I grew up in a great home. I, I've been to church my whole life. The author of that article says, you know what? You might want to probe further because he says, some people you ask, are you a Christian? And they say, yes. And it's a miracle. Yes, it's amazing That I was just like what John Newton wrote. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. So my friends, if you are a believer, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, if you're resting and relying on Him, guess what? You've experienced a miracle. But how about this? 
How about the words you speak? Are any of you all speaking differently now to people than you used to speak? Are you speaking words of kindness and truth instead of words of anger and, and, and um, power and control? Are, are you speaking words that build up now? It's a miracle. The fruit of the Spirit, it's a miracle. How about how you spend money? Has it changed? Is it changing? If it's changing in a way that is glorifying God and doing good to His people, it's a miracle. How about who do you spend time with? Do you spend time with people who can do something for you? Or do you spend time with people who, who can't do anything for you and yet you may be the one to whom they can one day say, you told me about Jesus. Miracles, signs, and pictures. Miracles are strange but true. I want to spend just a moment thinking about something that's very common but false in our culture today. I was in a building recently and there on the wall, almost like scripture, was God helps those who help themselves. That's Benjamin Franklin. It's not scripture. If anything, scripture could never say that God helps those who help themselves. It's very common, but it's absolutely false. It's easy to believe. I mean, who doesn't believe that initially? But it's false. However, miracles are hard to believe, but they're true. And these two miracles are signs that point to and pictures that illustrate the truth of the gospel. My friends, the gospel. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's too good to believe. But it's nonetheless true. And why is the gospel hard to believe? Have you ever asked why it's hard to believe? Well, the gospel is charity. The gospel is for poor people. For people who are poor and spiritually bankrupt. You see, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, the water that we swim in, all around us fights against charity. The gospel is hard to believe. Because to believe it, you have to acknowledge that you are poor and broke and helpless and hopeless and homeless. You see, the gospel is not, you can do it, we can help, the old Home Depot slogan. No, the gospel is, rather, you can't do it. And yet, in the gospel, God gives what he commands. You see, God rescues the homeless, the helpless, and the hopeless, and the homeless, then and now. Hear how Paul writes to the Roman church, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that is still helpless and hopeless and homeless, Christ died for us. Let that sink in, folks. He writes to the church in Ephesus, but God, being rich in mercy, you see, we're poor, but God is rich. 
God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were paralyzed in our trespasses. Is that what it says? No. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And to cap it off, he says this, by grace you have been saved. Aeneas, Tabitha, what did they do to get rescued? You see, my friends, in the gospel, God says to us, arise from the dead and rise up and make your bed after having been paralyzed. My friends, have you heard the command? Have you asked for help? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the person and work of Jesus Christ, dead sinners are brought to life. Helpless and hopeless and homeless people are given help and hope and a home. Oh, Father, help us to acknowledge, enable us to acknowledge our helplessness and enable us to receive and welcome the charity that the grace of Jesus Christ is. Oh God, would you be pleased to call people through the ministry of this church to rise up and make their bed. And Father, give them ears to hear that command, a new mind to understand, a new heart to embrace and receive, and new strong hands and feet to obey and get up and follow Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.